For the last several weeks, we've been studying a passage of Scripture that is found in the letter to the Ephesians in chapter 6. And in, these, uh, in this chapter and in these verses, the Apostle Paul writes about how we can stand firm when we face spiritual attacks. And he uses the analogy of battle armor. He says to put on the armor of God so that you can fight the spiritual battles in your life with strength, with endurance, and with victory. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And today we're going to be looking specifically at verse 17 where he says, and take the helmet of salvation. You know, a helmet protects the head. And we all know that a blow to the head can be lethal. So it's important to protect your head. But the head is also the place of your thought life. It's the place of your decisions. It's the place where we process information and experiences. It's where we develop our understanding of who we are and who God is. And if our head isn't right, then really nothing else matters because we won't be able to stand firm in the spiritual battles that we face in this life if our head's not on straight. So we have to have our heads protected. We have to protect our heads. This is what Paul says to put on the helmet of salvation. And what is salvation? Salvation is being rescued, delivered, or healed from something that is a threat to hurt or destroy you. And the Bible uses the word salvation all the time to describe what has happened to us if we're a follower of Christ through Jesus and in His death on the cross and in His resurrection. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. Well, the question we should then ask is, well, what saved from what? I mean, what are we saved from? A lifeguard saves someone from drowning, right? A doctor saves someone from sickness. But what does Jesus save us from? In Matthew 1.21, just before Jesus was born, an angel came to Joseph and said that you shall call your son's name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So this is what we need salvation from. It's sin. But what is sin? And, you know, I've been thinking about this all week, and I want to give you a definition. It's not a perfect definition, but I do think it's helpful. Sin is anything that vandalizes your relationship with God, yourself, and with others. See, sin is always destructive. And the Bible says that Jesus died and rose from the dead so that He could clean up the destruction of our sin, restore our broken relationships that have been caused by our sin and the sins of others. And so here's what I want to do this morning. I can't cover an entire theology of sin and salvation in one sermon. That's a whole study. But I do want to try to show you how the severity and the progression of sin in our lives and how it destroys our relationship with God and with others. And how if we don't repent of our sin and receive the salvation of Jesus, we will be destroyed by our own sin and we will hurt others in the process. And then I want to show how the salvation of Jesus can restore us. So the first thing I want you to see this morning is that sin vandalizes our relationship with God. You see, sin is always, first and foremost, against a holy God. I think of King David in the Old Testament. He was up on his roof one night looking over the city, and he saw Bathsheba, a, a married woman. And he lusted after her, and he called her into his house, and then he committed adultery with her. Perhaps it might have even been rape when you consider the power dynamics of a powerful king and a female citizen at that time. 
And then Bathsheba became pregnant with his child. And then in an attempt to cover up the whole deal, David used his power as the king of Israel to have Bathsheba's husband Uriah murdered. And when David is finally called on his sin, he just breaks down in shame and he writes a song of repentance in Psalm 51. And he begins that song by saying to God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And I read that and I'm like, what? Against you and you only? I mean, what about Uriah? I mean, you killed him. What about Bathsheba? You destroyed her life and you say that against God and God only you've sinned? But I think David realizes something that I believe we often fail to see with our own sin. And that is that our sin always begins against God before it affects others. And as David's sin progressed, others were certainly brought into the wreckage. It was an ugly ordeal. But this whole thing with Bathsheba did not start in the bed with Bathsheba. It started on David's roof in his mind. He looked upon something that was not his, lusted, and coveted after a married woman. And so his sin was actually first against God because David had everything. God made him king of Israel. God blessed him in all these ways. But in his sin, David essentially says... God, I know that you've given me all these things, and it's, but it's not enough. I want that. And I know you said I can't have it, but I still want her. And so it goes with you and me. When we choose sin, we are in essence saying to God, what you've said is not enough, what you've promised is not enough, and what you've blessed me with is not enough. So I'm going to go around you and disobey you, and I'm going to ignore your commands to get what I want. You see, our sin is always first an attack on our relationship with God, whether it's lying, lust, envy, pride, racism, sexism, or whatever. When we do these things, they are an act of separating ourselves from what God says is best for us. And therefore, we are vandalizing our relationship with God. And this is offensive to Him, it's hurtful to Him, and it breaks His heart. And our sin creates a fracture, a separation in our relationship with Him. Now, the second thing I want you to see this morning is that sin vandalizes our relationship with ourselves. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, I have come so that you may have life and have it abundantly. And the way I've always understood that statement is that the way of Jesus is the path that leads to the fullest life. And I believe that. I believe that obedience to the way of Jesus will put me on a path in which I will experience the most abundant and joyful life. So every time I choose to go another way, I'm actually forfeiting the abundant life that God wants for me, and I'm settling for something less. And you know this is true. Take whatever sin you struggle with, lust, greed, lying, self-righteousness, self-indulgence, whatever. And when you're tempted, you feel in the moment like obeying those desires will give you greater joy, but we all know the truth. They just lead to greater unfulfillment, greater frustration, and they just cause us to feel more shame and more guilt. See, our our sin affects our relationship with ourselves. It affects how we see ourselves. It affects how we feel about ourselves. And when we choose sin, we vandalize our own lives. And it causes us shame and guilt. And that leads us to despair rather than the abundant life. But praise God that Jesus came to deliver us from our sins. Third thing I want you to see is that sin vandalizes our relationship with others. Now, within this particular sermon point, I want to make three observations about how sin affects our relationship with others. First, when we sin, it hurts others. When we gossip or lie about someone, we hurt their credibility. When we're unfaithful to our commitments, whether in marriage, friendships, or business, we break people's hearts. When we abuse or take advantage of people, we dehumanize them and we leave them feeling exploited. And this angers God. 
And it creates separation between us and Him because we are vandalizing the very thing that He said was the most important commandment, to love Him and to love others and to be at peace with everyone. But secondly, we also experience when other people sin against us, it hurts us. For many people, the greatest wounds that they carry, many of the greatest wounds you carry, they're not self-inflicted because of your own sin, but they're because of the sin at the hands of others. And I don't really need to think I need to go into detail here because I think every one of you watching has been hurt by someone else's sin directed at you at some point in your life, and you've got the scars to show it. And when we're told in the Bible that the salvation of Jesus is good news, it's not only good news that your sins can be forgiven, but it's good news that you can be healed from the sins that others have committed against you. And now the third observation that I want you to see, and I think this is incredibly important for us to understand right now in the current time that we're living in, and that is that when sinful people participate in a society, we create societies that have traces of sin all over them. So let's just talk about what's going on in our country right now. In the last couple of months, and in particular the last couple of weeks, there's been a series of events that have caused our nation to have to wrestle again with whether or not there is a systemic racism problem within our government and within our system, system of policing. And one of the lines we keep hearing is, not all cops are racist, which I actually, I believe to be true. I don't think all cops are racist. But, and I've really had to listen and learn this over the last several years, What I think we often miss and what I missed for so long in my life and what I often forget is that we're all sinners, but we also all participate in various aspects of society. So all of us, we have our jobs, our families, our organizations, our governments, and we participate in these things. And when we come to the table and participate in these areas of our lives, we bring both our good intentions and we bring our sin and we're all sinful. And sometimes without even knowing it, our sin can create harmful, systemic, and sinful problems in the institutions that we're a part of. For example, many of you have worked in a toxic work environment before. That didn't happen because the leaders of your company decided one day that they just wanted to make your life miserable or that they wanted at the start to create a company that abused its employees. It happened because the leaders of that company were sinful people with unresolved sin issues in their life that spilled into how they led and how they created the company. And it created a harmful culture within the organization and it shaped your work environment. So when you look at American history, if you look at our founders, as smart as they were, as righteous as they were in rebelling against a tyrannical government and moving to a new land and forming a new nation, they were still sinners. And when sinners form a government and draft a constitution and form laws, we cannot be naive and think that there won't be traces of sin all over those things. And in the founding of our nation, the original sin was the belief that black people are inferior to white people and that they should be enslaved and counted as three-fifths of a human person. That was the law of the land in the United States of America from the day the first slave ship arrived in Jamestown, Virginia in 1619 until the 13th Amendment was ratified, which abolished slavery in 1865. That's 246 years. 
And the abolition of slavery was a beautiful and good and just thing. But on the heels of that abolition came the Jim Crow laws, which mandated segregation of blacks from the rest of society. And it allowed for systemic discrimination in housing, employment, and education based on race. And these horrific laws were enforced, oftentimes with violent force, by the police. And Jim Crow was the law of the land until the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Some of you in our church were teenagers when this law passed. In the scheme of history, this was yesterday. Did you know that Ruby Bridges is only 65 years old today? Black people my age have parents who could not drink from the same water fountain as my parents when they were children. This is not distant past. This is in all of our histories. And you say, well, things have gotten so much better then. Of course they have in so many ways, but we can't be naive. We cannot possibly think that nearly 350 years of racism baked into our nation's culture, government, and policing goes away overnight. It doesn't. And the recent example of George Floyd's death and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and many before them has brought this to light in recent days. And people are hurting, people are exhausted, and they are wondering when their country will see them as a whole person. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool seems right to them, but the wise listens to advice. And so if we are wise, we will listen to the advice of our black brothers and sisters right now who are trying to tell us that they experience racism in large and small, in personal and in systemic and structural ways every day. And they're trying to tell us how it has traumatized them over and over again. And they're trying to tell us that we can do better in this country. And so we all need to be wise and listen and reflect on our own hearts and our own prejudices and how our words and our thoughts and our behaviors might hurt and hinder those around us. And we need to be humble when we're corrected. We need to be humble when someone presents an image of our nation that doesn't match up with our lived experience. We need to be genuine in our empathy with other people. We need to repent of our sin so that our sin does not cause further corruption and pain in the lives of our neighbors. The point I'm trying to make is this. Sin is like a virus. It spreads into every aspect of our lives. That's true when it comes to racism in our country, and that's true in each of our lives. And with all the various sins we struggle with, your personal sin, if not repented of, it will spread into every area of your life, and it will vandalize your relationship with God, it will vandalize your relationship with yourself, and your relationship with others, and it will even spread into all the groups and organizations and communities that you participate in. You see, sin is not to be trifled with. It must be dealt with. We need to be saved from our sin. We need salvation. And that brings us back to the helmet. The helmet of salvation. There's a story in John chapter 8 of a woman that was caught in adultery. Jesus was teaching one day outside of Jerusalem when a few religious leaders grabbed this woman and brought this woman in front of Jesus and they had rocks in their hands ready to execute this woman. And they said to Jesus, Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. So what do you say, Jesus? They wanted her to kill her. They wanted... Jesus to kill her. And Jesus stops teaching and He looks at them and He says, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. 
And the Bible says that when these men heard Jesus' words, they each walked away one by one. And Jesus, with all the grace in His eyes, looks at this woman and He says, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now I want you to imagine this woman. The thoughts that were racing through her head as these men drug her through the city to bring her in front of Jesus. She was caught in adultery. She was probably so ashamed of herself. What was I thinking? She was probably thinking. I think that maybe she probably thought of her husband or the wife of the man that she committed adultery with. She might have been thinking of all the pain and brokenness that she had brought on those relationships and she was feeling shame for that. But she also probably thought of the self-righteousness and the contempt and the fury that these religious leaders were directing at her and how they were mocking her and trying to execute her. And there were likely the thoughts, these were likely the thoughts that were going through her head, thoughts of her own sin, thoughts of how her sin was affecting others, how the sin, and, how, and thoughts of how the, the sins of these men might cost her her life. But then Jesus, in just a few words, He freed her from these thoughts and He saved her from her sin. In one moment, He disarmed the unjust power structures that were trying to kill her by saying, who is without sin can cast the first stone. And in one moment, He freed her from the shame of her sin and forgave her from the guilt of her sin when He said, neither do I condemn you. But then, and we can't miss this, He delivered her from the power of sin over her life and compelled her to repent and to change when He said, go and from now on, sin no more. You see, salvation came to her that day. And the thoughts that were racing through her head of her sin were covered with the helmet of salvation. And so here's my message for you this morning. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says that the penalty of our sin is death and destruction. You see, all of us are sinners. And when we sin, we vandalize our relationship with God, with ourselves, and with each other. And if we are not quick to repent and turn from our sin, we will separate ourselves from a loving God. We will be overwhelmed with shame and hatred for ourselves, and we will hurt those we love, and we will take our sin, and we will infect everything and everyone around us. But there's good news in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is that you can be saved from the shame and guilt of your sin because Jesus took your sin on the cross, and He died for you. And because of the resurrection, you can also experience healing from the sins that have been committed against you, sins of abuse, sins of racism, sins of neglect. Yes, people have hurt you deeply, But because Jesus rose from the dead, He promises that you too will one day be resurrected. And because of that, you can know that the worst thing is never the last thing. Your sin will not have the last word over your life because of the cross of Christ. And the sins committed against you will not have the last word over your life because of the resurrection. And because Jesus sends His Spirit into those who love Him, you can also have the power to say no to your sin. So put on the helmet of salvation. In Acts chapter 16, a Philippian jailer who was unjustly imprisoning Paul and Silas, when he heard their singing and saw their joy, even in their suffering and imprisonment, he asked them, Guys, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Let me pray for you this morning, Crossroads. Father in heaven, we thank you for your salvation. God, would you restore the joy of your salvation to our hearts this morning for those who are grieving and hurting and are exhausted. God, for those who don't know you, would you give them new life through your death and resurrection? Would you cover their sins and lift their shame? And would you set them on a path to new life where they have the power to say no to sin and say yes to abundant life?
God, thank you for Jesus who endured the unjust systems of a Roman government and a religious crowd, a religious mob. And he died the death that we deserve so that we could have life. We thank you for the gospel. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.